Thank you for listening to Law Talks. Before you listen in to this episode, we wanted to let you know that this is one of our first attempts at creating the podcast. And as a result, it lacks the audio quality and cohesion that the later episodes have. We've kept it unchanged as the content is invaluable and very much worth a listen. We hope you'll stick around and check out and listen in to our more recent episodes too. of Law Talks. Today I'm joined by Gideon Cameron QC. Join us as we discuss a range of topics from defending murderers to multi-million dollar fraud cases. So briefly, what is your job and what is the difference between being a barrister and a QC or silk? So QC is a rank of barrister. So when you're about 15 or 20 years into your job as a barrister, you can apply to be a QC. The process is a nightmare. It involves a 65-page form, references from 12 judges, six QCs and six solicitors. And if you're lucky enough to be awarded um, your QC ship to enter the rank of QC, you go to Westminster Hall at um, the Houses of Parliament, you get to have the gate open and you get driven in in a black limousine and you wear the most fantastically ridiculous outfit which includes um, long spaniel ears full bottom wigs um, tights um, tights tights (laughs) and um, paste buckle shoes wow and you look like an extremely camp pirate I think that's a good look I think it's very cool to be driven in in a limousine. Um, But it gives you the opportunity to do the most serious cases Mm -hmm. and to get paid more money. Okay. Because also, just to say for our listeners, QC stands for Queen's Counsel. It does. Because a lot of people listening are very, like, early on in their legal journey. And I remember when I first heard the term QC, Mm -hmm. I didn't have a clue what that was. So QC is Queen's Council, yeah. and thankfully the Queen has lived as long as she has, so all we've ever known is Queen's Council. Yeah. But if there came a time when we had a king, you would become automatically oh. King's Council. That's very exciting. Um, and the reason why they're called silks is because the gown you wear as a barrister, junior barrister, a junior barrister is anyone, however old, who isn't a QC, um, is made of cord, like a cotton material, and the gown you wear when you're a QC is made of silk. See, makes a lot more sense. Um, Okay, so going on to the next question. Do you remember your first time in court? If so, what about it? I was representing a man, a homeless man, who I do remember his name, but I won't repeat it on a broadcast, who was charged with punching a police officer. It was a trial um, at Highbury Corner Magistrates Court. Um, My client was drunk when he arrived. He swore at me, he swore at the judge, but I... Nonetheless, earnestly cross-examined three police officers and accused them in various ways of lying. My client gave slurred and very sweary evidence um, before the district judge and I made an impassioned closing speech uh, and I lost before my backside had hit the seat at the end of my speech and my client got a sentence of immediate imprisonment. And when I went down to see him, he swore significantly more. So I wouldn't describe my first day as a triumph. Okay, 
To be fair, first case, that's a very difficult situation to be faced with. It so. was fun. I walked home feeling like I'd been properly blooded. Yeah. Um, that uh, as nervous as I was, and I continued to be nervous after yeah. that, that really very few things in the coming year or so were going to be m- worse. Yeah. You could, exactly. You could, at least if you lose first, you know, you, you, you can't go worse. I did there. win second. <laughs> yeah, there you go. This is, well, the next question is, what was your most memorable win? Well, I can tell you what my second win, second case was that I won, because it's okay. funny. A man had stolen a comedy clapping hat. You know, you pull the strings at the back and it claps at the front. Oh, okay. Um, it's like a baseball cap, which claps. I'm with you. Um, and he'd stolen a comedy clapping hat from a stall at Chessington World of Adventures and run around the stall, um, taunting the stallholder that he wasn't going to pay him. And he was arrested for theft. And we were gloriously acquitted because wow. there was no intention permanently to deprive the stallholder of the hat evidenced by the agreed fact that we were running round and round the stall, taunting him rather than running away with an intention to keep the hat. So that was my second, but I'm happy to say, not the win of which I'm most proud. Um, The win of which I'm most proud is, um, so I, when I was about 10 years cool, um, I was asked to go to Jersey in the Channel Islands to represent a man on a money laundering charge. And I went for three months and I stayed for two years and it was a huge case. And there it related to sort of three or 400 million pounds worth of tax evasion. The man charged was a man called Peter Michel, um, who, um, and I don't mind mentioning his name, his published judgment. And um, it was an extremely difficult trial. Um, it was very important to the local Jersey financial authorities that he was convicted and they really pulled out all the stops. But I took the view that the trial I'd received was, my client had received, was unfair, mm-hmm. that the locals were out to get him and that the judge in the trial had behaved badly. Um, we were convicted. We were sentenced to six years and his assets were significantly stripped, though we did save some money for him. We went to the Court of Appeal and we lost. They said, we don't seek to defend the way the judge behaved, but your client was so obviously guilty that no injustice was done. So we went to the Privy Council, which is a division of the Supreme Court. So you're in front of Supreme Court judges and you're in the Supreme Court building. And we argued our case there and we won. And we made a bit of law as well because the case decided that however powerful the evidence faced by a defendant, if a trial trial is unfair, the conviction must be quashed. Just create a bit of law, as you do. Create a bit of law, as you do. A little bit of precedent. And in the first paragraph of that judgment, um, they commented on how defence counsel had drawn them into coming to the conclusion that they had. And um, so in my dark, rainy moments of just losing and um, uh, having my ass kicked around the Court of Appeal time and again, as happens, I Google search (laughs) the Attorney General of Jersey and... Peter Michelle, 
I think fair enough. You can, and it gives me a nice warm feeling. Yeah. And you think you can win. So that's my favourite win. No, I think that's really interesting because also pride as a concept I find quite interesting myself. And like you say, when you turn to that, when you're feeling a little bit low, I think that's fantastic. Um, okay, so what motivates you? Winning. Winning. So, okay, let me qualify that a bit. So winning, if you're cheating, isn't winning. Yes. Right? So winning within the rules. Mm. And I'll qualify it further by saying, if you're prosecuting, winning if you should win. Mm. You shouldn't take any pride in securing unfair convictions. Yeah. Um, but um, securing acquittals, I predominantly defend, mm. almost only defend. So winning, and if I'm pro- on the odd occasion I prosecute, winning if I should. Mm. But the pain involved in getting from an instruction, which is a competitive process itself, in a big case, um, gorging on that case so that you know it, yeah. arguing that case, cross-examining witnesses, calling your client, making speeches, advancing legal arguments, none of that is anything other than, I mean, some of it's fun, but it's all difficult, anxiety-inducing um, stuff. And hard the thing, work. And it's incredibly hard work. And the thing that makes it all worthwhile is winning. I can see that. Honestly, hearing you speak, I've always been like, I want to be a solicitor, and now I'm like, maybe I could be a barrister. Well, you can win if you're a, you can win if you're a solicitor. Of course you can. Mm. But... Um, the satisfaction of being the person in the ring. Yeah. And there aren't many jobs in which you can get the kind of binary feedback of winning or losing, right? Because even in civil litigation, you get it to an extent, but you get a judgment. Some bits you like, some bits you don't like. You Sometimes you win hands down, of course, in civil litigation. Often you don't. But in crime, you've got... Um, a philosophical black box the jury you don't Mm. know what's happening in it Mm. and you feed in this material and you make decisions not knowing really whether they're the right ones or the wrong ones Mm. but you make them for the right reasons and you agonise over every decision you make and question you ask and then at the end you get an answer it's very cool it's very cool indeed I remember my work experience when I, I didn't stay for the last day of the trial with Sasha, but mm. she texted me, like, the verdict, and I was so invested in finding out. So Had I, you won? I, I can't remember. I think... I think... No. <laughs> no, but considering the case, I, I wasn't surprised at that, but it was I was waiting on, like, the edge of my seat to find out the verdict, so I can understand why that's very exciting as motivation. Okay, morally and ethically, what do you feel like your purpose is as a lawyer? Throwing you in the deep end there. So, no, no, I mean, so I did a philosophy degree. So I have thought a lot about this this sort of question. I suppose the pat answer is this. An adversarial system requires two things. One, your will to win. Mm -hmm. And the other is your sort of cultural investment. I mean, that is a legal culture rather than um, anything specific ethnically but a cultural investment in 
um, the rule of law, right? So not cheating. So it's a system with all kinds of problems. But if everybody does their job well and is keen to serve the interests of their clients and doesn't cheat, it's the least worst system. Yeah. And one that has been copied, sometimes sadly imposed, but um, not rejected once that um, imposition has ended and has been copied and retained throughout the world for a reason. Yeah. And that reason is your purpose is to defend the interests of your client and want to win for them. Yeah. And that has a deep attraction to it, both for the client and for the interest of justice. Mm -hmm. But it only works if nobody's cheating. I'm actually going to jump to a later on question because I think this is relevant to, to what you've just been talking about. But one of the questions we were asked was... How do you feel about defending clients who've been accused of nightmarish crimes, such as rape or murder? And the reason I jumped to that is because you're saying, you yeah. know, the whole purpose is to defend your client. Well, the whole, um, there, are, there are two answers to that. One's easy, one's hard. Mm. The easy answer to that is, silly question. Obviously, the fact that someone's accused of doing something awful doesn't make it more or less likely that they did it. Mm. So whether someone's charged with shoplifting or rape, mm. Your moral position in terms of ensuring that they're only convicted if a jury are sure that they did it mm. is the same. And of course, the fact that someone's charged with doing something appalling does not make it any, does not change that position. Mm. But what the question's really driving at is how does it make you feel? And the answer to that is much more complicated. So, there were a series of cases which I did in about between 2012 and 2014, and which were in the newspapers, where the accusation was that members of the Irish travelling community um, were keeping slaves. I think I might have read about this on your profile. Yeah. Briefly. So I spent... Um, and, and I've done a lot of work with that community, the Irish mm. community, in a number of different kinds of arenas, not just defending yeah. crime, but other things. So I was a natural choice for those accused of the, this terrible crime yeah. to act them, and I did. And so over a period of two years, I probably cross-examined 25 mm. slaves. And I say slaves because... Um, well, in, in around half of those cases, there was a conviction. Okay. Um, the prosecution got better as time passed mm. at securing convictions. First few trials, we were acquitted, and then they got the hang of what we were going to argue mm. and how we were going to approach it. And there came a point when I just said, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. It's miserable. Um, these were vulnerable people with addiction problems, some of them with learning difficulties, um, and lawyers, criminal barristers in particular, have a tradition of um, dipping into the worst aspects and the most distressing aspects of human depravity 
and then not talking about it and medicating with alcohol. Yeah. And um, provoking, and unless you're a sociopath, which most aren't, some are, um, uh, that's a human response. Yeah. Because although morally and philosophically your position is perfectly clear, yeah. there's nothing wrong with it. Um, as a human, you are dealing in human misery yeah. every day and um, you are using your privilege and education to undermine the story of someone mm. who is protected, thankfully, by police and prosecutors outside court. Mm. But inside court, it's just you and them. That's got to take a toll. And it does. Mm. And I stopped doing it. Mm. Another example is um, I did a case which necessitated me watching uh, videos involving children Mm. of a sort that I would not wish on my worst enemy. Mm. And I had to watch them. And I didn't sleep for a week. And I never did that again either. Yeah. So um, you won't hear many criminal barristers admitting Mm. things like that, but they should. Yeah. Um, And now I deal mainly in human greed and frailty Mm. in fraud. Yeah. Which takes less of a toll. Mm. Well, in my work experience, I did. It was child pornography a child pornography case. And how did you find it? I found that tough. Even just, you know, I was just shadowing. I mean, it was definitely insightful and I'm glad I did it. But it's kind of, I think there's this image of lawyers as sort of the thing you see on suits or Mm. how to get away with murder. It's like all very cool and not actually difficult. And I, I was kind of, it was a bit of a reality check, but I very much enjoyed it, but it was difficult. So I can understand... But it's not, it's important to point out that it's not a moral difficulty. Yeah. It's a human difficulty. Yeah. And when people ask the question, um, how can you defend these guilty people? They're not actually asking you a moral question. Yeah. Because they know that everyone's entitled to a defence. Yeah. They're asking you a human question. Yeah. How does that feel? The answer is, most of the time it feels fine. Mm. But sometimes something touches you Mm. and it doesn't feel fine. Yeah. And um, sometimes a long evening clearing the mind with a bottle of wine is enough. And sometimes it isn't. Mm. Yeah. I've listened to a man record his own death on an audio tape. Anyway, I don't want to frighten all you students off from doing crime. (laughs) And, and part of the reason why people choose to do crime is the human drama. Yeah. Is that it matters mm. to people. And yeah. it does. But there's a corollary to that, mm. which is there's pain and suffering yeah. behind every crime, if the crime is proved. Yeah. No, I don't think you will have put people off. I think it's important that it's talked about. Um, because one of the reasons we're doing the podcast is because we know it's difficult for people to get work experience and mm. that sort of insight into the reality of criminal law. So I think it's good, it's good to talk about it. Especially at the moment, it's impossible to get work experience. <laughs> exactly, with COVID. Because of COVID. Um, 
and I'll, I'll carry on with these sort of more specific mm. questions for now. So what do you do if a client confesses they are guilty? Because it kind of links to the past question. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. If a client, so again, there's a, um, the simple answer is, if a client admits they're guilty, they should plead guilty. Yes. There is a theoretical possibility that you might advise a client in respect of whom the evidence is non-existent or weak, mm -hmm. that while you absolutely cannot put a positive case on their behalf, mm. there's nothing wrong with you saying to a judge, there's no evidence here. Mm. That's not misleading, because mm. there might not be. Yeah. In reality, clients are cleverer than that. Mm. I've literally never had a client say, I did it, but I want you to advance a false defence for me. Yeah. Because generally, my clients have been a little bit more sophisticated. Mm. Um, and that includes years and years representing, doing two to three day knifings and street robberies yeah. and offences that um, you one generally doesn't associate with a great degree of sophistication. Yeah. But they never did, did that. That's just daft. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the other thing is, um, people are entitled not to jump in. I never walk into a conference and say, well, did, did you, you do, do it? it? <laughs> I walk into a conference and I explain the evidence against them. Mm. And then I say, what do you say about that piece of evidence or this piece of evidence or the other piece of evidence? And if they say, look, and people have said to me, look, I did it. The evidence is overwhelming. See what you can do for me. Yeah. Fine. Happens regularly. Yeah. Not so much anymore. Yeah. Um, but certainly when I was going to Highbury Court and Magistrates Court, you get the local criminal who would was a regular, if I can yeah. put it that way, who just probably have a better ability to assess the state of the evidence against him than me at six months call. Yeah. Um, and would make, make that call him or herself. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know why this question is asked a lot by people who are interested in criminal law. I think there's this impression that clients will either say, I'm guilty or I'm not. But I think, just to clarify, from the research I've done, if they say, I did this, I'm guilty, is it something to do with they can't you can't lie under they can't lie under oath or something? No, it's that you can't lie. You can't lie under oath. Defendants so you, lie yeah. under oath all the time. Okay, yeah. Stock in trade. I mean, <laughs> they shouldn't, but they do. Yeah. No, the, the answer is that um, no uh, lawyer, so that includes solicitors and barristers, yeah, should knowingly or recklessly mislead the court. Okay. So if your client tells you he did it, yeah. Which might be different from being guilty. Yes. Because the thing they did might not amount to a crime. They I might see. think they're admitting something to you. I'm representing a man at the moment mm -hmm. who's charged with an offence involving many hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. He doesn't dispute doing many of the things that the prosecution say he did. Yeah. But we, he and I both dispute whether those things amount to a crime. I see what you're saying. So, um, obviously, if it's thumping someone in a pub, either yeah. you thump them in a pub or you didn't thump them yeah. in a pub. But if it's fraudulent trading, it's all a bit more complicated. I was going to say, I feel like there's a level of complexity to cases which that question doesn't quite capture. So, But the, the, um, uh, 
answer that you're supposed to write down if you're asked that question in ethics is you cannot yeah. um, uh, deliberately or recklessly mislead, mislead the court. Okay. No, that's, that's good just to get And that is, that. if you do, it's cheating, mm. you'll be struck off or disbarred, and you'll deserve to be. Yes. Um, so the other two specific questions that we got asked, I'm not sure if this is your mm. area, but obviously yeah. financial fraud, yeah, yeah. finance. So what was, is the legal situation with GameStop? What does it mean for the future of retail investors and how can it potentially be regulated? Well, my instinctive reaction is that there's nothing new about GameStop. A financial market involves um, a price set for a share that's determined by people, some people thinking that that price is too high and other people thinking the price is too low. So there's equal numbers of buyers and sellers either side of the price. And that price increases as people um, change their minds. Um, short selling means that you can borrow something to give it back, betting that the price will drop in the interim and therefore you'll make a profit. All that GameStop is and the story is not the structure of the deal, it's the fact that institutional investors are betting on GameStop going down and individuals, partly because they don't like the institution investors, partly because they do like GameStop, um, are betting on it going up. And at the moment, they're just about winning. Mm. Will they win long term? I don't know. Um, I suppose one difference is that the GameStop pros, so people with long position on GameStop wanting to buy shares, um, they're not all motivated by profit, which is an alien concept to the City of London. Yes. Right? So they're doing it to be cussed, which is great. You know, they're making a point. Mm -hmm. They might lose a lot of money in the end, because if in fact, and I don't know much about the structure of GameStop or whether or not the institution investors are right to short sell it, they usually are. Mm. So if in fact... GameStop shares are overvalued and they're only being propped up by demand motivated by um, things other than the simple economics. Yeah. It's likely that in the end the institutions will win. Yeah. But we'll see. But I don't think there's anything legally distinct about it. Yeah. I think it's definitely interesting because these were a couple of questions the finance ones are from my friends that do economics mm. and they were I was asking them to ask questions about like financial law and it's all the things in the news that tend to be the stuff people are most interested in from mm. a legal perspective um so yeah that's that's really insightful um okay so the second finance question yeah. what is your opinion on financial companies that give professional finance advice via ai if an investment goes wrong with <laughs> advice having been given through ai would it be possible to sue on the basis that they feel misled? So, in a way, this is a simple legal question. It's about agency. Mm. Um, so, if AI provides advice that's either dishonest, so it's criminal, or negligent, so that's a civil mm -hmm. remedy, um, the question will be, who's responsible? 
Now, I understand there's a bit of complexity injected by machine learning, mm -hmm. but computers don't invent themselves. They don't program themselves. Yeah. And the algorithm that governs the AI is designed by somebody. And if it goes wrong, then it's likely that that design was either dishonest or negligent, in which case the designer and or the company that hired the designer will be civilly or criminally liable. Mm. So the responsibility would fall on them? Um, yeah, subject to any defence they advance on, well, it, we weren't negligent, it went wrong by accident in some way, yeah. um, etc. But the fact that... So, um, if I punch you in the face, I'm committing a crime. Yeah. If I pick up a stick and hit you over the head with it, I'm still committing a crime, even though it's the stick that's hitting you. I see what you're saying. I think when you sim simplify it, it's a lot easier to see that, but I can see why at face value, it's a difficult concept to understand. Well, I think, I, I think the question's not a bad one because the bit that I don't yet quite understand, and I think is probably yet to be litigated, mm. is if you design a perfectly good algorithm, and the AI takes itself in a direction that was entirely un unforeseeable, unpredictable. Mm. That will create a break, potentially, in causation. Yeah. So um, the stick analogy falls away. Yeah. Um, I think courts would be slow to absolve companies who choose to give advice in that way yeah. of responsibility for crap advice. Yeah. Um, and even if you didn't have a criminal or civil liability, you'd have a regulatory one. Yeah. You'd go to the FCA and say, they need to have their licence revoked mm -hmm. because they, they're giving crap advice and relying on AI. Yeah. So, and also, people giving financial advice, big institutions anyway, are extremely culturally conservative. Yeah. Um, but I can see why, if you're a sort of Elon Musky type character, you might be intrigued yeah. by um, the extent to which machine learning might break that law of agency. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to see if anything like that will happen. Um, and kind of linking onto that, over the course of your career, how have you stayed up to date and educated with changes in the law? So I guess that kind of links because it's like, mm. with that change, what will happen in that area of law? So, um, it's not easy is the answer. Mm. Um, I read, the one thing you should not do ever, in my view, is rely on articles and editorial. Mm -hmm. So every day I read the law reports. Um, not every case, but every case that might potentially have bearing on my area of practice. And it probably takes me an hour. And I make notes and I learn it. That's dedication. <laughs> yeah, because there's nothing worse than turning up at court and getting it wrong. Yeah. It's mortifying. It's the most public humiliation and a public humiliation in which every barrister however experienced, and I'm pretty old, um, lives in fear of. And it's not driven by any great um, uh, sort of moral commitment. It's driven by fear mm. of getting it wrong. Mm. 
Um, things like, for example, sentencing, which used to be a fairly simple process of trying to assess what someone's criminal culpability was, what harm they'd done, and picking a number that felt right, is now, it changes all the time. There are new guidelines, there's a strict process to follow. If you don't follow it, the court of appeal will get upset with you. If you don't draw the judge's attention to the appropriate current law, you have to be on it. They get upset with you too. You have to be on it. And um, in my line of work, for example, there might be a big change in the Supreme Court. So two examples might be big House of Lords decision in 2008 on confiscation, big decision on dishonesty, very recently in the case of Ivy from the Supreme Court. So you read that case and you think, wow, that's a big change. The law's changed. But then there are court of appeal case after court of appeal case interpreting down that decision. Mm -hmm. It changes all the time. Mm -hmm. So the law I learned in 1994 mm. is uh, unrecognisable yeah. now. That's so interesting. I think it's um, it makes sense that you sort of have. It's almost like you don't have a choice. You have to keep on top yeah. of it. Otherwise, it is embarrassing if you get something wrong. That was quite, I guess, quite a simple answer to yeah. why and how you. It's a very stay public stage. Yeah. Um, okay, so a couple of final questions. Does working in London result in working on higher profile cases? Because I know you've worked on a lot of high profile cases, and that's something that our followers find very interesting. So if you could just touch on that. Um, well, uh, it depends what sort of work you do. Mm -hmm. If you do fraud work, London's the only real place where um, most of the serious fraud cases happen. Mm -hmm. It's where the serious fraud office start nearly all their cases in Westminster Magistrates Court, commit to Southwark Crown Court. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they move over to the Old Bailey. Um, all the, I think, FCA cases, Financial Conduct Authority cases, um, Financial Reporting Council cases, all have their offices in London, all conduct their business and prosecutions in London. Mm. And um, so if you do financial crime, um, obviously there are frauds everywhere. Yeah. But if you want to do the most interesting and biggest financial bribery and corruption um, type cases, London, in my view, is the place to be. It's got that buzz around it. Well, it's where the work is. Yeah. And it's... it's um, uh, now, uh, there are people who have fantastic financial crime practices outside London, but they do a different kind of work. The cases are a bit it's, shorter. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you know, um, serious, what I call blunt instrument crime, mm. happens everywhere. Mm. So, you know, if your practice is... But then again, if your practice is terrorism, most of that will happen at the Old Bailey. Mm. Um, and there are people who specialise in that. Mm -hmm. um, but if your practice is, you know, um, murder or sexual offences mm. or whatever, then those are spread fairly evenly. Yeah. That, that kind of human brutality stroke frailty is... Um, spread fairly evenly throughout it's everywhere, the land. It's which everywhere. is not a nice thought, isn't it? No. Okay. 
Um, and fi the final question, what advice would you give to aspiring lawyers, both barristers and solicitors? Um, work hard. Um, have sharp elbows. Be resilient. And do something else. Play the piano. Ballroom dance. Do have something else. Yeah. Not a hobby, something you're really committed to. Yeah. And do it. Mm. Because the law's not everything. Mm. I like that. It's a bit different. I haven't heard that from any of our guests before. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time and for being on the podcast. It was a pleasure. It's